You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning. Would you turn in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3, please? And when you do... Please stand for the reading of God's Word. My name is Matthew Holbrook, and uh, I get to bring the Word to you this morning. Pastor Mike is out of town, and I get to preach something that I have been wanting to preach here at Grace for probably at least 10 years, and for whatever reason, as I've had other opportunities to preach, something else has always come to the forefront, and today it's finally here. I get to preach a verse that uh, I've been looking forward to for a while. But we are going to be looking primarily at verse 16 this morning, and a particular part of verse 16, but I want to read everything leading up to that. So we're actually going to read verses 1 through 17 to set the context. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put away, put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Lord, we do come to you giving thanks for what you have done for us and through us and in us. Thank you for the truth of your word that points us to salvation that works in us supernaturally to bring us from death to life and to bring us to where we can stand before you blameless with great joy. And so we commit this time this morning to you and pray that you would use it for your purposes and to change us to be more like Christ. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. We will be focusing this morning on verse 16 and specifically within that verse, the call to be singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I've always been fascinated by the power of music, how music influences moods and emotions, how music changes experiences, how music defines memories. 
one of our family's uh, strongest memories that are etched into each of our minds is a, uh, a situation that hap- happened that was centered on music. Um, and I think that music is a big part of why that particular event uh, is so um, strongly embedded in each of our brains. For about 20 years, starting when I was a kid, we used to go to Pasadena every December to go hear the Christmas concert by the Azusa Pacific University Choir. And it was something we enjoyed year after year. And we would always go to the same place after the concert to this Mimi's Cafe just down the street there in Pasadena. And uh, one year, we're seated in this back booth in this restaurant. It was about 10.30 after the concert. The restaurant was still pretty full. And uh, there were about 10 or 12 of us in our family that were there. And uh, as we're sitting there, just getting ready to order, in walks four of the soloists from the APU choir. And my dad sees them, and he has a brilliant idea, as he tends to do. He says, hey, I'm going to ask them to sing for us. We're like, no, 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 don't, don't do that. Well, they go and sit down. They're a few tables away. And he waltzes over to them and says, hey, we really appreciated uh, the concert tonight, we'd love it if you'd come sing for us. And they're like, no, no, no. And they brush him off and he comes back. And um, we finish eating. And so it's, I don't know, half an hour later or whatever it was. And all of a sudden, these four people from the choir come walking up to our table. And without really saying anything else, they launch into this spectacular four-part harmony of this Christmas song and the lyrics of the song were focused on, on this. Come, Lord Jesus, be born in me, that I may be reborn in thee. And that song just echoed through the restaurant, and the restaurant, apart from their singing, went silent. Everybody stops and listens and looks at them and looks at us wondering, why are they singing to them? The chefs come out of the kitchen holding their food, and they stand at the doorway to the kitchen, just with their mouths open, watching this spectacle. The servers are all carrying their trays, and they stop wherever they're at, and they just turn, and they look. Everybody is quiet. And we're sitting there at this table, our mouths open, looking up and hearing this just amazing rendition of the song right for us um, with everybody else listening in. They finished singing the song, and they turned to leave, and the restaurant stayed quiet. It was one of those moments where nobody even wanted to say anything to, to break the moment. It was, a, it was a magical moment. And then after a, a few seconds, then the, the restaurant erupts into this massive applause. Um, but it was one of those moments in life that we'll never forget. And we talk about that every Christmas that comes up in our family. Um, remember when the APU singers sang to us? And, um, and that song is something that we always remember and, and think about. Um, Music can be powerful, and it can do things in our minds and with our emotions. It's, it's a gift that God has given to us. It's a common grace. It's a gift that all humanity can enjoy, and a gift that makes life better. But ultimately, music is a gift to the children of God to sing to God. It's a gift to express the inexpressible to God and about God. And this morning, we're going to be focusing on a call to all believers to participate in and engage in the making of music, specifically in the form of singing. Whether or not we have, losing my microphone here, whether or not we have any talent or ability in that area, which 
I'll be the first one to raise my hand if it's me. So um, we are all without excuse to respond to this calling. But first I want to establish the context of this calling. The theme of chapter 3 is that as believers, we are all a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. So Paul's point here is put away the old self, put it to death, put on, wear the new self, the characteristics of the new self, wear what Christ wears, put to death sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lies, put it all away, put it to death, and put on, wear as it were, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bear with one another, forgive each other, and above all these, put on love. That's the calling. Take off the old self, put on the new self, these are the clothes of the, of the new creation. The thing is, is that this is, this is an impossible calling. It's an impossible calling. Put away your natural desires. Put on supernatural desires. Put away natural actions. Act in a supernatural way. Put away uh, your natural thinking. Put on supernatural thinking. It's impossible. But God makes it possible for the believer, and Paul tells us how this can happen. I'm going to give you the whole outline right now because this will get a little bit messy. Um, But Paul tells us how we are to put on the new self. And he gives us three main points, and I'm going to summarize them as, one, remember the gospel, and specifically within that, be thankful for the gospel. Number two, submit to the word of God, and he gives two sub-points to that, teaching and admonishing one another, and sing. That's where we're going to land today is on the singing part. And then three... Be Jesus-centric. So I want to unpack all the rest of those, and we're going to come back to sing at the very end. First of all, remember the gospel. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Rule is is the word that we would look at today as umpire. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your life. Let it be what calls things fair and foul, what calls balls and strikes. Let it be the umpire to determine what's right and wrong in your life. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let it umpire your life. And what's the peace of Christ? Well, Romans 5.1 says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Before salvation, God was at war with us. We were the objects of his wrath. And because of Christ's death and through faith in Jesus, we can have peace with God. That's the peace of Christ that's brought to us, is that we can have peace with God. It's the gospel. So what he's saying here in Colossians 3 is let the gospel be the umpire in your life. God was at war, now we have peace. Paul says, live with that knowledge always. Know what you deserved God's wrath and what you have, peace with God. You have a right relationship. You have an inheritance. You've been adopted. Let this rule your heart and how you interact with everyone. And the key to doing this is remember. Remember the gospel. We have spiritual amnesia, don't we? We forget. We forget the value of the gospel. I'm hoping, by the way, by the end of today that you're reminded of the value of the gospel. But remember. Remember the gospel. Remember what God has done. And be thankful. When we're thankful, it helps us to remember If you remember the magnitude of the gospel, it focuses your attention on the value of it. The magnitude of your hopelessness apart from Christ, the magnitude of your salvation. If you focus on all these things, it will help you to be thankful. When you're thankful, it'll help you to remember. And when you remember, it's going to help you to allow that gospel to rule in your 
life and how you interact with people. Remember the gospel. Number two, submit to the word of God. It says uh, here in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word of Christ, let it dwell in you richly. The word of Christ is Christ's word, the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the word. And this word dwell means to make its home in you. Let the word of Christ, let the word of God make its home in you. Let it dwell in you. Let it, let it set up its furniture, furniture in you. Let it, let it get comfortable in you. Let it become a part of you. Let it be its home in you. And it says to let that happen richly, or literally it means abundantly. Let God's word be in you abundantly, jammed full. Think of, think of your, your body as, as the dwelling place of God's Word, and it's just God's Word is jammed into you in every part. You're not content with spiritual snacks, but you want to feast on God's Word. God's Word is to permeate you, control you, live in you. When you get cut, you bleed Bible verses. When you get knocked unconscious, you wake up mumbling Bible verses. You see the world through the lens of the Bible. You think about everything in terms of what God's Word says. You're obsessed with God's word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The psalmist says in 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I can't see anything in the world apart from God's word. I see everything through the lens, through the light of God's word. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's what we live on. It's how we see the world. But not simply in an intellectual way, but in a submitted way in a way that wants to live according to his word in every crevice of life. Jesus said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Let it dwell in you richly. It's deep in you. It's embedded. It's memorized. It's loved. See, loving Christ means loving his word. They can't be separated. Some seek to know God primarily through an emotional experience and so they're wary of too much emphasis on God's Word. Some think that there's a danger in exalting God's Word too much, in worshiping His Word instead of worshiping Him. And yes, there is a danger in pursuing His Word in a purely intellectual way and exalting in your knowledge of His Word. That's wrong. And yes, we're to love God with all that's in us, our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And so... Our emotions not only can, but should be a part of this equation, but our emotions are a proper response to knowing God, not the avenue of knowing God. Our emotions should be a proper response to knowing God, not the avenue, not the means by which we know God. Author Jen Wilkins said this, For years I tried to love God with my heart to the neglect of my mind, not recognizing my need to grow in the knowledge of the I am. Any systematic study of the Bible felt mechanical, even a little like an act of faithlessness or an admission that the Holy Spirit's insight during a quiet time wasn't enough for me. But I was missing the important truth that the heart cannot love what the mind does not know. The Word of God reveals God to us. It tells us who He is. It tells us what He has done for us. It tells us how we can honor Him, how we can obey Him. The Word of God unleashes His power in us. It changes us. It reminds us, it teaches us. Putting on the new self is directly linked to letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you. 
Turn over to Ephesians 5. I want to look at a parallel passage here. It's, it's almost the same in many respects as Colossians 3. Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 15. I think we'll see some helpful things here. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 15, says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Very similar passage to Colossians 3. Here Paul is saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now who has the Holy Spirit? Every Christian has the Holy Spirit. Every Christian possesses the Holy Spirit. Every believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. If you have Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, the Spirit has come to dwell in you, 1 Corinthians 12, and it goes on. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. So what Paul is saying here is, since the Holy Spirit lives in you, yield to His control. Yield to His control. He should control you, control your thoughts, your actions, your desires, your thinking. Be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Submit to His control. The word filled is an interesting word picture here. It actually has um, implicit in it the picture of um, wind blowing into the sail of a ship and blowing the ship along and moving the ship. This word is talking about permeation and control, how the wind fills the sail of the ship and controls where it's going. In the same way, the command is we're to be filled, we're to be permeated, we're to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is blowing into the sails of our entire lives, moving us where we would go. So how do you do that? Well, compare Ephesians 5 with Colossians 3. Both speak of singing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and giving thanks. The outcome of both of these passages is the same. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, giving thanks. But the lead-in is different. In Ephesians, Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in Colossians, he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So both being filled... And letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you, both of these things lead to the same things. So these two ideas, being filled with the Spirit and letting the word of Christ richly dwell in you, they're directly related, they're parallel. These things go hand in hand. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. To be filled with the Spirit, to be dominated by the Spirit, to be controlled by the Spirit, means to be aware of what the word says and to be obedient to it. You have to know what the Spirit wills if you want the Spirit to control your life. And to know what the Spirit wills, you just need to know what the Spirit reveals in Scripture. And then submit to that. Be consumed by the Word of Christ. Bleed the Word of Christ. Be controlled by the Word of Christ, and you will be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Back in Colossians 3, Paul goes on and says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Toward this end, of being controlled by and, and under the word of Christ, we're to be teaching and admonishing one another. This is, this is something that happens within the body of Christ, within the church. We do this through the wisdom of God's word. We are, as a church community, to be teaching and admonishing one another, to be encouraging each other, to be pointing each other back to the word of Christ over and over and over again. Keep bringing everything back to the word of God. So what we have here is our 
our, our outline, if you remember, remember. Remember the gospel, but the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Submit to the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. We do this by teaching and admonishing one another. The next point is we're to sing. We're going to come back to that. And then the last point is be Jesus-centric. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What are you to do in the name of Jesus? Everything. Do everything for him. Do everything through him. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. For the believer, Jesus is everything. He's your light. He's your strength. He's your song. He's everything. Be Jesus-centric. So that brings us to this phrase in Colossians, that we're to be singing with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That brings us to the concept of singing. It's the natural expression of having the Word of Christ richly dwelling in you. When we gather on Sunday mornings to sing, we're not coming together for a concert or for a performance. We don't schedule the singing to start the service to fill the time until everybody comes in. We're being obedient to a command that we sing and that we sing together. Scripture is full of commands to sing, and we'll look at this in this context, it's to sing together. But Psalm 9, 11 says this, Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. Later in the Psalms it says, Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. What do you think we're supposed to do? Sing praises. It's hard to miss the point. And I can give you dozens and dozens of verses that call us to sing. We're to sing to the Lord. And I'm preaching at myself on this as somebody who can't sing. But we're called to sing. So if it applies to me, it applies to all of us. Keep in mind the overall theme of this chapter, to put on the new self, to put to death the deed, the thoughts, the patterns of the old self. Put on the new. And here in Colossians, as we look at this call to sing, we're looking at how does that function within the context of the church. Now, the idea of singing in the church opens the door to all kinds of thoughts and opinions. Everybody has an opinion about what and how we should sing. In fact, this is not new to the church. People have been arguing about and expressing strong opinions about singing for literally hundreds of years. In an introduction to a 16th century collection of music, Martin Luther wrote this, anyone who does, anyone who does not appreciate the beauty of these multi-part pieces and view them as a gift from God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Martin Luther had a strong opinion about these songs. And a lot of us have strong opinions about what we sing and what we should sing. People have opinions about singing and about music. Although I don't have any particular musical gifts, I am fascinated by the gift of music and the gift of singing. And apparently I'm not alone in the world. Singing strikes a chord with people. American Idol, The Voice, The X Factor, and dozens of offshoots in other languages and in other countries and other versions. 
28 and a half million Americans regularly sing in over a quarter of a million choral groups. And there's karaoke. There's people that sing in the shower and sing in the car. I drove up to an inter- intersection once and there was Jonathan Reismuller on his motorcycle singing at the top of his lungs. I loved that, by the way. Why is this? Somehow, hearing music activates an emotional response in us. It captures feelings. It puts to sound what we sometimes can't do with, the simply, with a simple spoken word. But more than hearing music, actually engaging in music, and specifically in singing, has a physiological effect on us. All types of singing have physiological effects. There was an article in Time magazine entitled, Singing Changes Your Brain. It says, when you sing, musical vibrations move through you, altering your physical and emotional landscape. It goes on to say that singing releases endorphins, the brain's feel-good chemical. If you consider the, the songbird, we see examples of this in nature. The male songbird sings to female songbirds, and scientists have been able to identify that when that happens, it activates a pleasure center in the male's brain, and the effect on the bird's brain is similar to the effect of addictive drugs. But interestingly, this doesn't happen when these birds sing alone. And the same is largely true for humans. Time Magazine says this, group singing is the most exhilarating and transformative of all. It takes something incredibly intimate, a sound that begins inside you, shares it with a room full of people, and it comes back as something even more thrilling. Group singing has been scientifically proven to lower stress, relieve anxiety, and elevate endorphins. Group singing can result in the release of oxytocin in your body, another hormone that's been found to alleviate stress and anxiety. Oxytocin also enhances feelings of trust and belonging, which may explain why some studies have found that singing lessens the feeling of depression and loneliness. A study published in Australia in 2008 says that on average, choral singers rated their satisfaction with life higher than the rest of the public, even when the actual problems faced by these singers was more substantial than those faced by the general public. What do I conclude from this? We were made to sing. God designed us to sing. And we were made to sing together. God made us for singing. God God gave us music as a common grace that blesses the whole world, but we were made specifically for singing to Him. It's throughout history. We see from the very beginning of time, in Job 38, it says that at the creation of the world, the morning stars sang together. Jewish tradition speaks of a song sung by Adam when his sins were forgiven. In Exodus 15, God gave Moses a song to teach to the Israelites after they had come through the parted sea. The longest book in the Bible, 150 chapters, is the book of Psalms, a book of songs to be sung. Bob Coughlin says this, probably no one exemplified God-pleasing worship more than David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was a skilled musician and a man of profound emotion, but when it came to worshiping God, it was his words not his music that God chose to preserve for us. So there's something about the words captured in the the music that has an effect on us. 
Jesus and the disciples sang a hymn in the upper room before Jesus went to be betrayed. Much of Colossians 1 and Philippians 2 were actually thought to be quoted by Paul from early church hymns. And at the end of time, we will culminate with the redeemed gathered around the, Rome, around the throne, looking to the Lamb of God, singing a new song, singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Time is going to end with singing. Time began with singing. And guess what? One day, God is going to sing over you. You know when you hear like a spectacular solo or for us sitting in that restaurant hearing those four people sing and how that felt? Imagine if the one who created all singing, created all things, were to sing over you. Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I want to hear that song. We were made for song. We were made to sing. We were made to sing together. And we're made to sing together to the one who made us singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Also note that we're to sing to each other. We're singing to God, but there's a sense in which we're singing to each other. In the parallel passage in Ephesians 5, Paul says that we're to be addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're to come together. Our focus is on God, but we are, in a sense, singing to each other. We're reminding each other of who God is. We're reminding and encouraging each other to focus our attention on Him, to praise Him, to worship Him. There is something about coming together and singing that we're called to do that honors the Lord and God works through us in that. As badly as I might sing, be careful on how I say this, but as badly as I might sing, if I'm not here on a Sunday morning, there's a sense in which you guys are all ripped off. (laughs) And when you're not here on a Sunday morning or you're not singing, You're ripping me off. Because we are called to sing together, and there is something about how we are ministering to each other when we sing together. So what do we sing when we come together? We sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Psalm 33 says this, Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with a lyre. Sing praises to Him with a harp of ten strings. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully with a shout of joy. God wants music that is loud, that is skillful, that is joyful, and expresses a new song. Well, what's the new song? It's the song of the redeemed. It's the song of new life. It's the song of the new self. Psalm 40, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. That's the testimony of David. That's his testimony of his salvation. He was singing a new song. Ours is a new song when we are singing about our salvation. We aren't entirely positive as to what is meant by psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, but there seems to be a consensus that psalms are referring to either the Old Testament psalms or just in general anthems that are directed towards the greatness and the glory of God. Hymns 
seem to imply a song of praise generally related to salvation. And spiritual songs are likely referring to personal testimony, like amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So we sing great anthems about God. We sing great songs of salvation about the cross, and we give personal testimony to the work that God has done in our lives in songs of testimony. So what do we sing here at Grace? How do we decide what we sing at Grace Church of Orange? It's not um, thought about casually. Um, we're actually extremely intentional about what we sing here. Um, I'm not saying we get it all right all the time uh, or that it's the right, the right uh, pick or the right version. And I know there's different opinions, but I can tell you what goes into the thinking and what the desire is and what we choose here at Grace. First of all, we want songs that are singable, which is very practical, but we want to sing songs that are singable, that everybody can sing along with. There's a call for all of us to sing. We don't want to sing things that only like, you know, the superstars can sing. We want to sing songs that are largely singable. Secondly, we're very concerned about the lyrics in the songs that we sing. We want lyrics that are primarily, not exclusively, I'll explain this, but are primarily Jesus-centric. We want to be Jesus-centric. We want to sing songs that, for the most part, a Mormon could not come here and sing, that a Muslim could not come here and sing. We want to sing about Jesus. We want to draw our attention to Jesus. There is a place to sing about the wonder and the majesty of God and God Almighty, and we certainly do sing those, and, those, and that's important. But the mix is going to be weighted heavily towards Jesus-centric lyrics. And we want lyrics that have deep truth. I've talked in the high school group for years about Fruit Loops and Wheaties. You know, Fruit Loops are easy to eat, they taste good, and then they don't do much good for much longer after that. You eat Wheaties and you may not like them at first, but they're kind of an acquired taste. But as you eat it more, you find that it's more healthy for you and it's going to last longer and benefit you more in the long run. There are syrupy, sappy, feel-good worship songs that are like Fruit Loops and might feed you for a little while and taste good and be easy to engage in, but they dissipate quickly and don't have a lasting effect on you. And then there are songs that are going to be more densely lyrical, and maybe you have to train your brain and your mind and your heart to engage in those, and you have to work a little harder in the process of actually singing and, and, being, and being committed to, to engaging in those songs. But you learn to find out that they're more healthy for you and they last with you and that they're going to do more good for you in, a long, in the long run. We're looking for songs more that are more like Wheaties that are scripture-based and that have lyrical density to them with deep lyrical truth. Bob Coughlin said, we need songs that have substantive, theologically rich, biblically faithful lyrics. A consistent diet of shallow, subjective worship songs tends to produce shallow, subjective Christians. I would say such Christians will be more easily moved when the winds of trial and adversity blow. Gordon Fee said, show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. Our songs reflect and establish theology of a church. As we sing, we teach theology, as we ingrain theology. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. We want our singing to be a part of that. What do you want rolling around in your, in your head when you leave church on a Sunday? You want the word of Christ. Let it dwell in you. And not just on Sundays, but always. Something supernatural happens when we gather together to sing together. And if those lyrics get stuck in your head, praise the Lord. 
the power of music to ingrain theological truth in our minds. We want deep truth stuck in our minds. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. I'd rather that be stuck in my head than na, 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 na. Now, there's a, there is a place for simple responsive songs. I don't want to shortchange a, a simple, uh, appropriate um, song. There is a place for simplicity and just the simplicity of an expression of response, the simplicity of the gospel. There is a place for that. Not everything has to be deep and lyrically dense. But the responsive songs should be just that, responsive. They should be responding to theological truth, not trying to manufacture emotional responses. They should be responding to what is already there, to the truth that is there. So when we look at our mix of songs that we sing, we're going to lean heavily towards the content-driven songs, but we want a place of release, a place of simpler responsive songs mixed in. And so there's, a, there's having a, a right balance and a right mix of those, but we lean towards the content. And then the music itself should serve the lyrics so that it doesn't distract from the lyrics, that it's consistent with the nature of the lyrics, that it's consistent with a sense of the holy, that it assists in worship, that it's not manipulative, that it's not overly repetitive. I think there's a place, by the way, for repetitive lyrics. We see that throughout the Psalms, re, re, um, words and phrases being repeated over and over. But sometimes music can be used in an overly repetitive way to manipulate emotions and to draw us into a place that's not responding to any substantive truth. And we want to make sure our music doesn't do that. We want to make sure that the songs that we sing prepare us for the sermon. In 2 Kings 3 and in 1 Samuel 10, we see that Elisha was unable to speak the word of the Lord to the king of Israel and Judah until a musician came and played for him. God seems to have established a relationship between music and his word and being ready to hear his word. Without being too overly pointed, depending on your level of engagement in singing on a Sunday morning, we all hear a different sermon, I think. Because when we engage in singing, it's preparing our hearts to hear the sermon in a certain way. And so to the extent of our engagement in the worship time, I think, prepares us to hear the sermon in different ways. And so we actually hear different sermons. We choose to sing at Grace songs that have been around for a long time. We sing current and modern songs, but we sing songs that have been around a long time. We sang a song this morning, by the way, that has been around for 400 years. Fairest Lord Jesus was written 400 years ago. We are connected to generations of believers throughout 400 years of singing the same songs, praising God together. We're connected over all that time that we come back to over and over and we worship with believers who aren't even here anymore singing those same lyrics. We sing, Come Thou Fount, which was written 300 years ago. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. 
That stood for 300 years and it connects us with generations of believers. Now, I'm probably going out on a limb here, but I'm confident that no one's going to be connecting back to this generation 300 years from now by singing, look what you made me do. For those of you who don't know what that is, that's the current Taylor Swift song. It's not a Calvinistic anthem to God's sovereignty. But (laughs) there is something about the songs that we sing generation after generation within the church that have an enduring value because of the depth of the truth that they proclaim. We're not to be robots, by the way, in our singing, mechanically going through the data that we sing. And there is to be emotion in our singing. That's the whole point of singing is to engage truth and to have it translate into an emotional response. Music is intended to do that. Jonathan Edwards said, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. Music stirs our emotions, and it should. We don't want to be seeking to only have an emotional experience, but when we are engaging in the word of God and with the truth of of real and deep lyrics, it should engage our emotions, our whole being. We want to worship with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, everything in us. It comes from letting the word of Christ richly dwell in us. First comes the information, and then should come emotion. We're all different people, and We are wired in different ways. God has made us in different ways. And so I think the way that emotion can be expressed is different in different people. It doesn't have to look the same. Our posture doesn't have to be the same. There's room for differences in how we express ourselves before God as that emotion is in us. But we should be engaged to where our hearts and our souls respond to what our minds are understanding about what we're singing. We are made to sing. We are commanded to sing. But I want to bring us to see that we have reason to sing. We have reason to sing. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heaven with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. We have reason to sing. Who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Kings and nations tremble at his voice. All creation rises to rejoice. Behold our God seated on his throne. Come, let us adore him. Behold our king. Nothing can compare. Come, let us adore him. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. We have reason to sing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We have reason to sing. Come behold the wondrous mystery, Christ the Lamb upon the tree. In the stead of ruined sinners hangs the Lamb in victory. See the price of our redemption, see the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We have reason to sing. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. What comes next? Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We have reason to sing. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. We have reason to sing. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have reason to sing. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We have reason to sing. I called your name, you heard my cry. Out of the grave and into life, my heart is yours, my soul is free. Thank you, God, for saving me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, perish, but have eternal life. We have reason to sing. While I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I soar to worlds unknown, see thee on thy judgment throne. Rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed, 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We have reason to sing. And on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near, and my time has come, still my soul will sing your praise unending 10,000 years and then forevermore. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Lord, thank you so much that we have reason to sing. God, let us sing in way that honors you and pleases you and submits to you. Let us sing as a response to the word of Christ which richly dwells in us. Let us be Jesus-centric. Let us encourage one another and, and teach each other and admonish one another. And let us do that even through our singing. God, would you use our songs from our hearts to change us and to focus our attention on you and give you the worship and the praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.